The tour content from now through Lagwa Omer has been generously sponsored by Malki M. Thank you, Malki. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shiurim. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and gain access to additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishneweis.substack.com and signing up today. Okay, so as I mentioned, this is going to be a, a sort of unorthodox uh, beginning to this year. Um, so uh, I, I have no idea... This is related to tefillah, but it's just been on my mind and I wanted to talk about it. So um, as I mentioned, uh, and pardon anyone who already this is duplicated on in terms of Facebook. So I just found out that a family member died of COVID um, uh, on Sunday. Um, and it's not sad, or I mean, it is sad, but I'm not sad because I didn't know this person. So this is someone uh, we called Sister Susan. Um, and... Um, we growing up, I always heard about Sister Susan, but I always this is my um my so we, we call my grandmother Popo. Okay, so this is Popo's sister. Okay, my grandmother's sister, my great aunt, and so I always grew up hearing her called Sister Susan, and uh, I didn't. I always thought that that was just like my grandma's nickname for her. Uh, but then I found out when I was a teenager, she's uh, she's a sister. She's actually a nun. Okay, she's a Catholic nun. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, um, she, I think she joined a convent and became a nun when she was 21 and she served there for 44 years before retiring. Um, and she just passed away on Sunday at the age of 93 from COVID. Um, and because she was in a convent for her whole life, then I didn't really, we didn't really know her. Um, and, uh, and it was, um, you know, and even my mom, you know, even by the time my mom was, uh, was born and growing up and she didn't know her. Um, and so like, it was, it's not, that's why like, I'm not sad in a personal sense because I never really met her and I don't really know her. Um, but, um, but it did get me thinking, <laughs> first of all, it did put me in a very Kohelesi type mo- mood in the sense of, uh, of, you know, Dor because that generation, you know, so I, I was born in Hawaii and my mom was born in Hawaii and her parents were born in Hawaii and her mom was born in Hawaii. Uh, her parents were born in Hawaii and then her, 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 her mom's dad was also born in Hawaii. And so this is, this is the cam side of the family and they've, they've been there for a very long time. And, uh, and now the only one left is my grandmother, uh, who's 96, you know? Um, and so, but the thing that made it, I mean, that was one thing that was Kohelesi, but the other thing that was Kohelesi was the fact that like, um, there's, you know, there's a, a thing in Kohelesi that talks about a person who like spends all their life, um, gaining, uh, just, uh, gathering wealth and, uh, and like, doesn't have any other family. And, uh, and then when they die, then all their wealth goes away. So obviously sister Susan, because she was a nun, you know, she never got married. She never had kids and, uh, and, but she didn't spend her life, you know, um, uh, gathering wealth. And so, um, so, but there's this like weird thing, uh, like there's this weird Kohelesi co- type vibe of the fact that like, you know, this person who I'm related to, who lived a 93 year old life, um, who spent her life, like, you know, serving others is just gone. And so where I, I found right, like a half an hour ago, literally half an hour ago, my mom sent me this newspaper clipping, um, with, uh, not an obituary. This was actually when she retired. And so she had a quote about Tefillah here. And it got me thinking about Tefillah. <laughs> okay, so um, so that's her. So that's Sister Susan. Um, and uh, I guess this is in 1992. So she must have been, if she was born in, 
I can't do the math. <laughs> she was born in 27. So I don't know how old she is, but whatever. So, um, oh, so we also found out that her order of nuns basically was, uh, was noteworthy for saving Jews from the Holocaust, which for a convent of nuns from Maui is not a thing you would typically hear. So that was just an interesting, uh, you know, in- interesting, um, you know, connection there. But then she, at the end, when she's asked about her retirement, so this is what she says, and this is what I want to talk about for Tefillah. Let me see if I could put it up here. So she says, um, I am now looking forward to moving on to the next phase in my life, to have the leisure time to look, listen, and appreciate the beauties of nature, to know that God and all his majesty is all around me. My life has been so busy. I have not had enough time to smell the flowers and to pray in a leisurely way. <laughs> okay. And uh, and I guess that's what she did after she reti- retired in 1992. So 1992 to 19... 19- I mean, 92 to, to this year, I mean, that, that's a long retirement, you know? Um, and so the thing that, the thing that made me think, there's two things that made me think about this. So first of all, this led me to think about the idea of saying that because of her busy life and her busy life, if, I mean, if you read the article, um, she basically spent her whole life in, in serving and caring for other people. Like it says here, after the fall of Saigon, she was asked by the Catholic Welfare Bureau to direct the Indo-Chinese resettlement program in, in Los Angeles County. Um, so like she really, and again, she was a nun. So like she didn't have material possessions and stuff, you know, and she spent her life in, you know, in service of, uh, of, of God, according to her understanding, um, which obviously is very different than ours. But I guess what piques my interest here is, is this thing of because she, she's had a life that's so busy, she hasn't had time to pray in a leisurely way. And I don't have a, 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 a like, you know, formulated thought about this, but just to share like what's on my mind about this, because today I read the Mishnah in my uh, Pirkei Avos class, Lo HaMidrash Hua Iker El Hamasa. Now we haven't learned that yet, but again, just on its face level, Lo HaMidrash Hua Iker. So Midrash is not Iker. And I don't think it means Midrash like Midrash Haggadah. It means, I mean, literally, what, what, what would you say the literal translation of Midrash is? Literal translation. To, to be extrapolating? Yeah, like extrapolation, right? So it's not even the word for learning, but like, ex- like it has a, a, a an implication of like textually expounding on text. Yeah, you know, sorry, expounding on on text, like unpacking text. You know, so lo hamidrashu eker el hamaase. You know, um, so again, I haven't learned any of the mafarshman that yet. I just brought it up factually in my class uh, this morning, but I was thinking about this and about the relationship between tefillah and action. And this is a point that I made in my Erev Yom HaKippurim, Yudgam Amidus HaRachamim share, which you haven't, if you haven't listened to it, that's one that I, I feel like is the most important share that I will have given in, I mean, in my life so far. I don't know. Um, but, you know, like, that's like, that's like a big thing in terms of, uh, of, of how we relate to God. And one of the major points of the shear, which the Ramam is the more Nevuchim with, is that the whole purpose of the Midos HaRachamim is not just to intellectually uh, contemplate them, but to emulate them um, and to enact, you know, Rachum Chanun, Erechapayim, Rav Chesed Emes in action, you know, uh, that our knowledge of God shouldn't end with just intellectual knowledge, but should overflow into our actions and like lead to us being a vehicle of Ratan Hashem in the world, you know? And I was thinking about that in relation to tefillah and the statement here of like that her life has been so busy and she hasn't had enough time to pray in a leisurely way. And it's very interesting because literally her whole idea of tefillah was absurd. I'm sure. I don't know Catholic doctrine, but she's praying to a man God, you know, 
Um, and, you know, and I actually, I read the, um, they, one of, you know, I mentioned that her, you know, her order was one of the big claims to fame was that they saved a bunch of Jews from the Holocaust. And one of the nuns was actually martyred uh, and um, by the Nazis. And so she wrote a manifesto. I, I just only had time to skim it because I just got it right before the, uh, before I give share now. Uh, but like, and it was her manifesto. And she was talking about how like she pledges her life to Jesus and like to the vicar who is in Rome and like all this other stuff. And so clearly her idea of tefillah is completely removed from reality, you know? Yet the crazy thing is that like she, like, this nun who martyred herself and then, and then sister Susan, my great aunt spent her whole life, like literally enacting, you know, Rachamim and Chain and Chesed and like caring for people who are, uh, downtrodden and like in need, you know, and, uh, and like orphans and stuff, you know? So it's just, just this weird paradox that made me think about the fact of like how much of our tefillah, obviously, you know, the Iker, you know, the essence of tefillah, we talked about this on Friday Q and a, um, th uh, that like tefillah essentially is a, a, an activity of judging yourself and evaluating, you know, where, what your standing is in line with God's value system, you know? But like, and so it is a, it's an avodah shabalev. It's an activity of the mind, you know, and of the heart. But like, if that doesn't actually change you and make you into someone who is enacting Ratzon Hashem in the world, so then you got to question like what value it is, you know? And so I don't know. I was just, because I was thinking, because I was about to be giving a, a, a shir on tefillah and I just got this article beforehand, it really just led me to wonder. And again, this, this very paradoxical article where I have this relative who, by the way, like, not that I ever use the word clergy by my, uh, about myself, because I view myself as a teacher, not a clergy person. But if you, and, and, and technically nuns are not clergy either, but it is weird like it's just a weird affinity that the literally the only two people in the last like 200 years in any branch of my family who like <laughs> went into a profession associated with God is this nun who's my great aunt and me who's like a, a, a teacher in, uh, in Torah, you know, very, very different uh, in their nature. But like it just this whole weird juxtaposition just got me thinking like what, you know, what is our like are we putting enough focus on translating tefillah into changing the way we act, you know? And like I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned to you guys, I, I forgot. Yeah. yeah. Wait. Yeah. We read it in the Mishnah, in the Mishnah last week um, that, you know, the Chassidim Harishonim would, would spend an hour before davening preparing themselves and then an hour in davening and then an hour after davening. And I feel like the hour after davening is the hardest one to understand because before davening, you can understand that you're preparing for tefillah and we understand the category of preparing for tefillah. And then like, um, and then like in tefillah, you can understand because that's like the, you know, that's the essential activity of davening. But like the question is like, what's the activity? What is the hour awaiting after tefillah? You know? And I don't have an understanding of that yet. Cause I'm still working through it with Levy, but like, it's got to have something to do with taking the ideas and the insights that you got in tefillah and then translating it into how you you're going to go into your life afterwards. And I feel like that's just a step that I can't speak for you guys, but like, I definitely, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about tefillah in preparation for tefillah. That's what we're doing right now. That's what this weekly shear is. And I try to spend time and energy in the actual activity of davening, but I really just don't think that much about how I translate, excuse me, the insights of davening into tefillah and certainly not being on the Javero, you know? And like, this is a big idea in tefillah. It's like the whole thing, you know, Joe was mentioning last week, 
that we put all the tefillos in plural, you know, even though the lashon of the pasuk is in singular, like Rafa'inia Hashem ve'erafe, and we change it to plural, you know, and like the Mepharshim are bothered enough by that to ask the question, like, how can you just change the lashon of the pasuk? And it says, for tefillah purposes, it's it's fine, you know? So however you understand that halakhically, like, you know, it's a big thing that we are supposed to be, you know, thinking about all of our needs and how we line up to God's value system but thinking about it in terms of other people as well and how we live in order to help our fellow Jew and our fellow human being to achieve those needs, you know? And like in this morning's Marcus Aurelius, you know, those who listen to it, like where he's talking about how all of us have in common reason. And if we have reason in common, then we also have in common the dictates of reason, what reason is obligating us to do. And if we have the dictates of reason in common, then we also have law in common because law should be based on what rationality is. And if we all have law in common, then we're all common citizens. And if we all have common citizens, then we're all members of one political association. And from that, you know, this morning I went into talking about like, you know, uh, um, that every human being, ultimately we envision every human being living in one society, which is all, you know, around Yudhiya Hashem and everyone has their needs provided for. Um, and like, that's the idea we're striving for, you know? So I don't know, all these ideas have been like swirling around in my mind today, um, especially in the last half an hour when I got this article. Um, and, uh, and, and because in the article, sister Susan mentions, um, uh, prayer and like, <laughs> it, again, it's just like a weird, because she's going to stop her busy life. Now she has time to pray, you know, and, and this is leading to this realization that like, no, maybe it should be the other way around that if you're, if your activity of tefillah is not dictating what you do in your busy life, then there's something wrong with your tefillah or there's something wrong with your life or there's something wrong with both of them. So those are my thoughts, <laughs> uh, however scattered they are. Uh, any, uh, any questions or, uh, or feedback? I just had to get that out. You know, you got to capture the insights while they're coming to you, you know? I'm definitely going to think about that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, it's just, it's, it's insane. Like it's insane that we talk about, you know, Hashiva Shoftenu. And then like, how much are we involved in actually like bringing about justice, you know, like, or, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, admittedly, it's harder to relate to because we're talking about like other people instead of ourselves. And like, yeah, the first half of the Bakashos do pertain to ourselves, but like, you know, all of them really are related to other people as well. Like, you know, we don't explicitly reference, you know, the Yasom and the Almana in, uh, in our Shimon Esrei, but like the theme is present throughout all of like, certainly Pesukah de Zimra and like anytime we talk about God and it's just like, like, I can't help but, but think it's like a, a, a form of hypocrisy to, be asking God for, you know, for things and to, to implement like his value system when like we're, if we're not actually like making um, motions towards that uh, on its own, you know? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, uh, isn't it like, like the Navi talks about that, right? About like, God doesn't want like stolen sacrifices right. and like uh, yeah yeah right it's like there's this idea like of a Boda of like just uh you know doing what God asks and uh and if it goes against justice or if it doesn't serve justice then that's that's not the type of avoda that God wants yeah so same thing same thing for tefillah 
Uh, a couple comments, uh, not sure. on the last point, though I do think yeah. it's somewhat hypocritical, but, you know, also, we also do have, you know, like we need to have a, a, a strict uh, format of Tefillah. And like, it, it's all hypocritical in a certain sense, you know, like uh, we want we want health, but like how much are we going out to, you know, go and heal people, you know? Right. But um, uh, the point I primarily wanted to get to was uh, about praying in a leisurely way. I mean, first of all, it's uh, it's beautiful language. Um, yeah <laughs> says it. and you can tell it's like it's very it's very real to her you know that's yeah. not just uh that's not something you say casually you know to, right. to get like popularity points or something right <laughs> um, and i think i think with ourselves i think there 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 are two uh you know um relevant elements to it i guess that uh first of all in terms of you know any form of tefillah outside the formal structure of three times a day you know just the just speaking to God type of tefillah, um, which is definitely more leisure in a certain sense. You know, it's really just whatever's on your mind, your own intimate, personalized relationship with Hashem out of a formalized text, um, which I think most people probably, uh, you know, don't do enough of. Uh, yeah. And that's in terms of... Just a, before you go on to your next thought, that's actually something that... Uh, I was asking for requests from uh, Lomdeha for what to do in our Friday seminars. And one of the topics that was requested was like, um, the, what are the parameters of extemporaneous tefillah? You know, like the, the, what you're mentioning. Cause like the Ramam does talk about that at the end of Hilchus Brachos or at the end of Hilchus Brachos chapter 10, I think, you know? Uh, and like, it's always, I've always wanted to look into the sugya because on the one hand, like you said, just like you said, like actual tefillah is so rigidly structured, but yet, the Ramam at the end of Hilchus Brachos, let me just actually show it to you so you don't have to take my word for it. Um, hold on just one second here. Um, oh, hold on just one second. I'm sharing a bunch of stuff here. Uh, remember your next thought. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> okay, hold on. Mishnah Torah. Yeah, I really need to get into the habit of when I go to the Mishnah Torah, I still think I should use Mahon Mamre just for the speed on Zoom. I hate to say it. Oh, see, that's the Mishnah Asgadolos. All right, let's go to Mahon Mamre. Boom, lightning. Boom, lightning. Not really. Ahava, Brachos, Yud at the end. So just to show, because like, again, I, you know, because of my exposure to tefillah, I like, you know, have an instinct to like balk at the notion of, uh, of extemporaneous tefillah, like formulating your own way. But the Rambam does seem to say, let's look at the end here. Um, he says, after this is the parak with all the miscellaneous brachos and tefillah. So he says at the end, Person should always cry out about the future and ask for mercy. Um, and give uh, thanks according to what or about what happened in the past. And give thanks and praise according to his capacity. And the more person increases thanking God and praising him constantly, then the more praiseworthy he is. So if a person wants to argue with this and say, no, 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 he's talking about like the halakhically legislated brachos. I don't think that stands up for two reasons. Number one, kfikoho is the type of, type of lesson that he used when he's talking about the original form of tefillah in Hilgos tefillah, when he says that each person would be, um, uh, you know, before there was a set text, let's see here, um, 
that uh, he says, I mean, it's not the exact same Lashon, um, but, oh, it is the exact same Lashon, sorry. So a person, what, what was the Mitzvah del Rai? So a person would daven and supplicate each day and uh, recount the praises of God. And then afterwards ask uh, for the needs that he needs through request and supplication. Then he would give praise and thanks to God for what he uh, bestowed upon him. Each one according to his capacity. And that was, the Ramam explicitly says, was not according to any text. It was just like, according to whatever language you wanted to, to, to do it in. And secondly, if the Ramam is talking about a set amount of, um, of uh, you know, the, the, just the set brachos, so then like, it's a much more difficult read to say v'chol hamarbe lahodos as Hashem ulashabcho tamid. So, like, what does that mean? You have to like be like machayev yourself in extra brachos that are halakhically chayev. Like, to me, it's mashma that the Rama means that you should um, you should thank and praise God constantly according to your own language outside of the parameters of the legislative brachos and tefilos. The only question is like, how do you do that given the fact that halakhically and metaphysically? the parameters are so strict with regards to tefillah and brachos, you know? So that's something, Joe, that I want to take up. Uh, and maybe we can take it up in this year. Maybe I'll do it for Lomdeha, but like I've been meaning to look into that for a while because uh, I agree. It seems like a very good venue for actually like, you know, developing your relationship with God, whatever that means, as we discussed last time or two times ago. Um, but yeah. All right. What's the other thing you're going to say? Yeah. So the, the second point was also that even within our uh, structured tefillah, you know, I think uh, it, for most people probably, I mean, maybe I'm just projecting, but I think it's accurate that um, most people daven by rote, basically. Like you yeah. can probably, the average person can just close your eyes for like a nice 25 seconds during davening and like not even realize or someone can just pull your sitter out of the way. You wouldn't even notice, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, and like, obviously that's uh that's that's a killer for tefillah. You know, that's not a voter should believe at all. Right. And when you uh, when you think about um, the Mishnah Novos talking about the Chassidim Rishonim, even even just like to put up those kind of numbers, like I think uh, <laughs> yeah. someone 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 did the math. Like if like in like a uh, if you daven Shmona Esrei for an hour, right? So it's a hundred divided by nineteen brachos is three point one five. Okay. Okay. So that's just over three minutes of bracha. And someone someone did the full math. It came out to like I think six seconds a word. And okay. I tried it. I tried it once. Yeah. There was like a stretching yeshiva. <laughs> that's work. an interesting experiment. I, that sounds yeah. that's a very tempting experiment. Yeah. So like I, I was like, okay, obviously I'm not gonna go the whole Shimon Esri like that. You know, yeah. I'll waste half the day. But you know, at least like the first bracha or the first line of the first yeah. bracha and like putting like full mental concentration into yeah. all those words and when you dive in like that it kind of just i'm not gonna say i sustained it i didn't you know it's really hard yeah. but like when you when you put that type of focus in it i think it naturally changes you you know mm. yeah and then, and then also when you put in the additional work after the fact trying to actively implement it it's only gonna compound itself but just you know the focus and the attention Right. Um, I think that itself does uh, a lot of the work naturally. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And that, that is a tempting experiment. I, I, I got to say, the only time I've ever tried anything close to that is those times when I'm davening by myself, uh, Hanates, and I accidentally finish the Shema too fast and I have to stretch out the, uh, I, I mean, I don't have to stretch out, like you can, you can wait, but like I tend to stretch out the bracha of Ga'al Yisrael, like the last, like, you know, like 
couple sentences, you know, and you're right. It does like, it forces you to pay attention in a, in a different way. Just kind of like, like, kind of like the way that they, that people talk about it. Like if you, if you savor food that you're eating, you know, it just, you know, you've got nothing else to do. If you're, if you've already made your goal to, to create that, that, uh, that space of time, you know, to like do it in. So you're, you're just kind of like having to focus on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. Good, good observation. Building on that, uh, that exact same thing. And also like, um, kind of, kind of what, uh, I think sister Susan was getting at. Yeah. Um, when I was in Turo, I actually had the best davenings Wednesday nights after class, we would daven in school. Um, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you why, first of all, it was done in a computer, a computer room, like a computer lab. Yeah. Um, and like, I had like this tiny little pocket sitter I wasn't even like using. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason that I had like a better Kavana then than any other time, besides maybe a Shiva one, like I like, Act, like in Israel when I was actively like trying to um, make my feel better yeah. was I think it was because um, all work was like assigned for Wednesday. There was two week, two days a week. It was Mondays and Wednesdays yeah. and Wednesdays were like the toughest days. Like all assignments were due. And then like, you're finally like done. Like, yeah. like it's like, okay, weekend already. Uh-huh. And then like <laughs> brain like was able to just like focus on Tila. That's interesting because, like, I I think I can relate to that experience. It's funny. I have my own weird Turo-related tefillah experience, uh, which I'll comment on in a second. But my experience with this, and I I gave I made this point in the five minute kavana videos that the um, I'm a big believer in conservation of kavana. You know, now obviously halakhically you have to conserve your kavana for the first pasuk of the Shema and the first bracha of Shema Ezra. You know, so I try to do that. But there's only one bracha that I actively summon up all my kavana for that's outside of tefillah like outside of uh, of, uh you know of, of tefillah and shema you know and that is kiddush of friday night um and i uh i try and i i feel like the, what you just described of like the entire week has been building towards this and like you're at a state of literally like halakhic leisure you know in the sense of like you can't do anything else you finish all your work and uh, it definitely creates the mental space to be able to have that uh, that that attention. So yeah. So the question, I guess, is: Do you need to retire as a nun or go to Turo to have that kind of feeling? I would like to think no. <laughs> you know, like the question is: How can you, uh, you know, can you, um, can you, can you uh, summon that up? Uh, and what I'm like, I'm what I'm thinking now is like, see, I feel like another problem with our davening. I'm just spitballing here. Okay. This is just throwing this out here. Another problem with our davening, I think, is I think most of us, whether we are davening bihidus or in minion, our usage of the time is in the hands of someone else. You know, if we're in a minion, then we have to go at the pace of the minion. And even if we don't go at the pace of the minion, you have the pressure to go at the pace of the minion if you're diving slower or whatever, you know. And then when you're at home, like when I'm at home, I, I can set my own pace, but the pressure of other activities encroaches on that, you know? So what I'm wondering now, and this is just a, again, just spitballing here. I wonder what would happen if we were Kovea eating Latfila. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So finish your thought. I'll, 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 I was just going to say like, it's the same principle that you're saying Joe about the Hasidim Harishonim, not being Kovea an hour. Cause that's insane. Who can do that? You know, uh, you'd end up like wasting time, I think. But, um, but if you just said like, I'm going to do nothing else, Let's say let's let's say like you dive in you know bichidus uh, uh, shakris or whatever you know what if you just say I'm going to do nothing else for this half hour except things related to shakris 
you know? So either you stretch out your davening for an entire half hour or you daven and you finish and then you sit there afterwards, you know, thinking about your tefillah or whatever, and you set it aside. And then if you did that in a disciplined way, I feel like it would create the space where you would have that relief of, I need to rush to the next thing, you know? And maybe that would improve the quality of the tefillah. Yeah, Joe, what are you going to say? Yeah, I think it's definitely true. Um, I had a Rebbe who said in his neighborhood they had um, an 100-minute Shacharis minion wow. every, only on Fridays. Yeah. Um, and uh, they first recruited him. He's like, you know, that sounds kind of crazy, but he he went mm-hmm. and he would go consistently. Eventually, like, the minion just fizzled out because it was just, you know, like almost too hard at a point. There was, yeah. like, barely a minion. Yeah. But he said, like, those, those davenings were just fantastic. Like, there's nowhere – like, you know you're there for an hour. You're not looking at the clock. Like there's nowhere for your mind to go. Like you're just like you force yourself to be just present. Yeah. And I think it's definitely true that, you know, we're distracted and our minds are in a thousand other places. And if we would just be, you know, I'm sure if we were, let's say, you know, sentenced to prison for life, you know, life in prison, no, no bail, no way out. Yeah. You know, I feel like we would have better Kavana, at least for a little bit. Yeah. When you just know, okay, there's (laughs) nothing else for me to do right now. This is it. Right. Right. They uh, had that in Yeshiva, Kavana Minion. Oh, was that a thing? And like they they had it um every every month around Rosh Chodesh, they had it in the basements of YBT. Um hmm. I didn't up know until that. coronavirus. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And not was, not YBT people. There was like people from usually not YBT people. But, yeah. Um, yeah. It, but I, I don't know if they weren't granted access to go to YFR or or uh-huh. but a lot of those guys came and and mm-hmm. Dalvin's in the basement of Yeshiva. And like they, they spent maybe like 40 minutes. It was always Marv. Um, yeah. They spent about like 40 minutes on Marv, maybe. Mm-hmm. Give or take. Interesting. Yeah. See, I think uh, just, just to comment on the, first of all, I like when Joe was saying about that example about that it was only on Fridays, you know, uh, I, I might've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again that uh, Rabbi Moskowitz said that, um, that Rav, uh, I, I don't know when or where this was, but Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, my Mishlei Rabbi Davind, I guess in the minion with Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, for a certain period of time. And uh, he said that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky ha- uh, after Shacharis every day would have a, um, uh, he had a mini uh, Tanakh that he kept in his Talis bag and he would do Nach Yomi. You know, he would do a parak of Nach a day. And then Rami Moskowitz said, but I noticed he didn't have it in his Shabbos uh, Talis bag. You know, he had separate uh, Shabbos Talis. He didn't have his ta- Shabbos Talis bag. What do you learn from there? That he wasn't neurotic about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so like, uh, you know, that was talking about one dimension of, of, of that. But I think that it's also like, I feel like it's very easy for a person to make these types of practices into a neurotic thing or into an extremist thing or into an ascetic thing where like you're, you're trying to like make this into your, your thing, you know? And um, the way I prefer to look at it uh, is I've, you know, I've quoted this a lot, uh, a lot. I mean, this is, I think in the top 10 Bruce Lee quotes here, but in my top 10 Bruce Lee quotes, people have have to grow by skillful frustrations. Otherwise they have no incentive to develop their own means and ways of coping with the world. So this is something that you, I, again, I, my, my whole, you know, approach is in the, in the, I hate sukkah article that I wrote or the, uh, the Lafum Tsar Agro according to Bruce Lee article that I wrote. Uh, But like halacha is skillful frustrations. It is, ways to take your routines and upset them in order to get you to reflect on yourself and to stimulate change, you know? And I feel like 
experimenting, not committing to, not making a netter, not like going all in, not obsessing about, but like experimenting with a thing like that of like a hundred minute chakris or a like, I'm going to try saying my kiddush on Friday night with Kavana, you know, like these are healthy experiments that at least give you knowledge of where you're at. Like, let's say it doesn't actually improve your feel at all. You at least get knowledge of where you're at. And then like you have the data to be able to figure out how to improve on that afterwards, you know? I think uh, related to uh, a point about the, you know, making it into a neurotic thing or something or an obsession. Yeah. I don't know if this is a true story, but I think, I think it's about the, uh, one of the summer summer Rebbe's that he apparently he davened in like a very like particular, like notable voice. Um, so like at some point, like at a wedding, I don't know, there, it was like a, like a Hasidish minhug to have like a guy, like make jokes type of thing. So like he, oh, yeah. with the Rebbe's permission, like he asked, like, you know, is it okay if I make fun of the Rebbe? The Rebbe said, yeah. yeah. And um, the guy, so he's doing his joke and he starts imitating the way the Rebbe davened, you know, in like this like voice, whatever it was. And the Rebbe started crying. It was uh-huh. like a big deal. Like he made the Rebbe cry. So one of was like, was like, wow. Oh. Gotta appreciate like, how feel bad that must have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so, yeah. He, so he's like, you know, I'm so sorry. I asked for your permission. You know, like he's like, no, don't worry. I'm not offended. He goes, I'm crying because if you can imitate the way I daven, what is my davening? You know, if it's so repetitive wow. and so the same every single time that you can literally hmm. imitate it to the T, like huh. that, that means I'm doing it. That's that means thing. I'm just imitating myself. Uh-huh. I think that was, that was the line in the, yeah, in the story. The way it was told. I'm just yourself. imitating myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that also is a, is a big part. Yeah. Of I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, that, so this is, I got to give credit. Uh, this is Ayala Fader. This is a uh, Fader's daughter uh, who I teach in Lamda. So she was asking for tips for what to do to increase davening, you know, increase Kavana while davening, you know? And like, I had previously given the tip, uh, my, my biggest tip, I guess, I don't know if I've said this yet, but my biggest tip is insert personal Bakashos in, in all the Bakashos in the Shemayat, not all of them, but like, not just in Shemayat Filah, because then you just end up waiting till Shemayat Filah. And then you like, you know, it's just like checking your watch until you get to Shemayat Filah. But like, if you insert personal Bakashos in, in all of the Brachos where they're relevant, so then you end up involving yourself. We're selfish creatures. You know, this is very Mishlaic. Like you involve your own self and your own needs and all the tefillahs. And that's what you're supposed to do for tefillah, you know? Um, so, so I, that's, that's my, like my go-to tip. And so Ayala asked, like she said, you know, I did that and it worked for a while, but then it stopped. Um, like it stopped, like having a, I stopped like doing it with Kavana. So I gave the advice of like every once in a while, and this is for myself is, you know, I catch myself saying personal bakashos by rote and sometimes what you have to do is you have to like reset your bakashos you know this is like a level up thing you know like level one is you got to insert your own bakashos level two is you have to think about the bakashos have kavana level three is you have to stop saying bakashos you know and then what it does is you you like you end up like uh feeling deprived like and when i say stop i don't mean just like naturally stop i mean don't say bakashos for a while you know and you end up feeling a natural like like i want to ask for the stuff that i like want you know or that i need and then what it for and but you're forcing yourself to not ask and then what it forces you to do is to scrutinize first of all you're already now thinking of the bracha in a real bakasha way like it'd be like if you went before a human being who you had to ask something for and it was usher for you to use certain words you know the words that you're accustomed to use to ask for the thing you would end up like trying to figure out well how can i ask this in a way 
through other words. And then you find out, hey, guess what? Anshik Nesagdola came up with all the right words for you. And like, probably the stuff that you're asking for is already in like the actual text of the Sermon Ezra. So like, just pay attention to what you're actually asking, you know? And so it's that similar thing of like, it, it, I mean, it, it's not exactly the same, but the idea of imitating yourself, of like catching yourself, you know, um, being just doing a certain rote activity uh, and not doing it naturally, you know, uh, you got to break out of that when you, when you catch yourself doing that. And in fact, this leads to another, hold on just a second here. I actually have a point about, about that. Yeah, sure. While you um, do that, you got to find another Bruce Lee quote. Hold on. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. I think the, um, the wanting to say something, but not, yeah. um, forces you to pay more attention to what you are actually doing. Um, and like, whether it's fulfilling that, um, like I, I actually, um, had a point like 10 minutes ago that, um, I wanted to say, and then it never ends up being a good time. And we moved on. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw like, you on mute, but, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I, I was like, I feel like a few different times. I was like, like I wanted to say it, but I, I like, yeah, go ahead. You can say it now. Well, no, I, I'm just saying I was waiting, and then that forced me to like think about whether um, what was being said was like addressing the, what I was thinking. Ah, uh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, was that what you were gonna say? <laughs> that yeah. was a good point. But I, yeah, I don't know what I was say, yeah, the thing I was gonna say um, was kind of said, which is maybe um, like setting. Like let's say um like setting aside like ten minutes more than what you than however long it normally takes you to daven, mm-hmm. and and like making sure you're not gonna have any distractions or being interrupted and like um and saying this time is just gonna be for daven and then yeah. um and I think maybe also not doing that at like regular intervals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. So that w- when you do it, it's not part of a routine of doing that type of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I think that's very wise. And I, again, I, I, that's why I think like viewing these as isolated experiments rather than, look, some experiments, okay, I, I actually, I, I take that I take that half back, okay? I think the thing that I agree with is that this should not strive to be a thing you take on, you know, uh, that you like, you know, a practice you take on. Whether you do it in isolated instances or whether you do it for a discrete period of time, or uh, that's not the right word, for like a delimited period of time where you say like, I'll do this for, um, you know, for two weeks or something like that, you know, and then I'll stop. And then you, you actually have to stop. Like, you know, I, I think the key is like you just don't let it become a thing that becomes something you're, you're super eager is just trying to get you to try to do or like something that you take upon, uh, upon yourself because uh, then you start to relate to it differently. But I, I agree with you in principle. Yeah, and I think also the like that way, it, um, you don't start relating to it in a rote way. Also, right? Yeah. Um, uh, a point here that I want to another Bruce Lee point I want to make here um, is this is in uh, Organized Despair. Um, he says that uh, so the secondhand artist is a term he uses for people who are. It's a derogatory term, okay, that you're not original. Um, The secondhand artist in blindly following the teacher accepts his pattern 
And as a result, his action and above all, his thinking becomes mechanical. His response is automatic according to the pattern and thereby he ceases to expand or to grow. He's a mechanical robot, a product of thousands of years of propaganda and conditioning. The secondhand artist seldom learns to depend upon himself for expression. Instead, he faithfully follows an imposed pattern. What is nurtured is the dependent mind rather than the independent inquiry. And he actually talked earlier about um, how, uh, hold on, actually, I should have read this earlier here. Yeah, yeah. Um, that yeah so i, I gotta read this part here um so this is him talking about his um uh jeet kundo which is his uh his style of martial arts that he uh he uh, invented before we look into jeet kundo let's find out what exactly a classical style of martial art is to begin with we must realize the, the absolute fact that man created style Disregard the many colorful histories of their founders by a wise, mysterious monk, by a special messenger in a dream, in holy revelation, flooded with golden light, and so forth and so on. A style should never be the gospel truth, the laws and principles of which can never be violated. Man, the human being, is always more important than the style. Okay, now here's where he goes, how styles are started. The founder of a style may be exposed to some partial truth. But as time passes by, especially after the founder has passed away, his postulates, his inclination, his concluding formula, we constantly learn, we never conclude, become a law. Creeds are invented, reinforcing ceremonies are prescribed, separative philosophies are formulated, and finally the institutions are erected so that what might have started off as some sort of personal fluidity of its founder is now solidified fixed knowledge, organized and classified response presented in a logical order, a preserved cure-all for mass conditioning. In so doing, the well-meaning followers have made this knowledge not only a holy shrine, but a tomb in which the founder's wisdom is buried. Um, yeah, so um, one more paragraph. If we honestly look at the reality of combat as it actually is and not as we would like it to be, I'm sure we cannot help but notice that a style tends to bring about adjustment, partiality, denials, condemnations, and a lot of justification. In short, the solution being offered is the very cause of the problem, placing limitations and obstacles on our natural growth and consequently obstructing the way to genuine understanding. So here's the thing, and this is the interesting clash between Bruce Lee and Torah, okay, which is one of the many interesting clashes, which is that originally Tefillah was like that. Tefillah was each person formulating their own encounter with God and their own avodah belief, their own shabbat, bakash, and hodah, organically and naturally in accordance with their own needs, reacting to whatever happened based on their knowledge, okay? That was great until people stopped being able to do that. So then the Anshikana Sagdola formulated something that contains the, you know, the avos, you know, the, the general categories of all of our needs and the proper praises of God and the proper shabbat, and we are obligated to engage in that. The danger, though, is that because we have to do that, that becomes, like Bruce Lee is describing, like a fixed prison where it's just being done robotically and by rote. But unlike Bruce Lee, who in innovated his, his own style, we don't have the luxury or the, the permission to do that in halacha. We can't just like daven however we want. Joe's case aside of like extemporaneous tefillos afterwards, but certainly in the actual Shimon Esrei, we can't do that. So the, the challenge is to find out how to be spontaneous and original and nuanced and personal within the confines of the set text of tefillah. And that's the skillful frustrations that I was talking about before is like trying to figure out how this static text can trigger new growth, new meaning, new insight, and that you relate to it. Like, you know, in that Rashi uh, or the Chazal that Rashi quotes on, um, Hayom uh, that it shouldn't be like a uh, like a diotagma yeshana. It shouldn't be like an old edict that you aren't excited for. It should be like a new thing that you're looking for and applying fresh tears off each time. And so, like the trick is, how do you do that in tefillah? And like the the advice I gave to Ayala, um, 
thank you, uh, Isaac. Um, yeah, I, I recommend people read that. Um, uh, the um, Oh, the, the advice I give to Ayala of like in putting in your own bakashos, which is the personal fluidity and modification, and then depriving yourself of that in order to stick to the set text and try and find meaning in that, that could be a very, very useful tool for um, for like striking that balance between, uh, you know, originality and freshness, but like within the confines of the rigid halacha. Um, let's not just talk about it. Let's uh, apply one of the atomic habits. Um, techniques okay and actually make a plan for what to do in as an experiment so what should we do as an experiment for tefillah given everything we've said now it should be a limited experiment and it should uh we, we've thrown around several ideas one being to um prolong the amount of time we spend saying the actual words one being um just being kovea etim latfila, you know, like like regardless of how long you actually daven during that time. So what what should we do? And we should we should do it. We should come up with something and then come up with a, a time and parameters for how to do it, and then report back. So what do you want to do? This is serious. <laughs> like how how can you actually make? <laughs> I know, it? Now, look, it's, look, now, this, it's, this, now it's legit. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, look, this is. I, I've said this before. I don't know when I said this. This is my mock locus with Rabbi Moskowitz. I mean, I said this on, I think, Friday Q&A, you know, Rabbi Moskowitz staunchly maintains <laughs> that, like, how do you change yourself? You go over the ideas clearly, and over time, you change automatically, and you shouldn't try to force change. Maybe I'm just impatient, <laughs> you know, but I think that there are things that you can do. And I'm not saying that you're forcing change in the sense that we're putting super ego pressure on ourselves that we have to change. I'm proposing an experiment where we try out something in order to, to gain self-knowledge. And what is tefillah if not self-knowledge? That's literally, Lee's Palel is literally self-judging. You know, like, like so, you know, we're, we're doing a tefillah experiment within tefillah. So what should we do? I think first for choosing a time, um, yeah. that should be like a personal thing. Like, when do you feel most relaxed? When do you- Okay, that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a uniform time. Concerns. Yeah. Okay, good. So I guess, so step one is choose a tefillah where you have that leisure Turo feeling. <laughs> Not that I want to associate Turo with dominant. Wow, never thought I'd say that. But um, yeah, the, the one that Ezra was describing, right? Okay, so now the question is, what do we do during that time to as the experiment? What should the first experiment be? I know for myself and Marv, I definitely have the time to make it a, a set, you know, primarized amount of time. Yeah. And I, I think that probably is most likely for people's schedule in general, because statistically people have the least to do after Mariv, you know? Uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay. I'm down with that. So what, what's going to be the experiment then? I think first of all, um, surrounded by Bakashos or surrounding Bakashos. Um, so first like jot down, like what your Bakashos would be. So this is actually an interesting question, right? Is that like, I'm torn between, you know, on the one hand, you have this idea of if you're going to go before the king, you think about what you're going to say before you say it, right? But then you also run the risk of delivering it by rote as opposed to um, what's the mission in Pirkei of, um, you know, don't make your tefillah like a masway, but it should be like tachanunim and something, lifneamakam. Isaac, do you know this? Yeah. Um, but like, you know, so, so I'm, I'm always like, uh, a little torn and I do both about whether 
how much to preemptively formulate my uh, bakashas. I could see both ways. I just wanted to point that out. I'm not saying which way you should do. I think for me personally, um, I think what I would do is just try to um, just try to like spend an extra ten minutes on Marv. Because mm-hmm. um, I think for me, I have a tendency to rush through davening and like if I don't if I don't have any like constraints, I'll like like just like go as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. But I think for right. me, the best like the best thing is to just like set myself a time of like 10 minutes longer. So, Yeah. Yeah. The question I guess is, is that too ambitious? Yeah. I was going to say 10 minutes is a pretty long time. Yeah. It's really, well, it I, sounds, sounds I, short, but it, yeah. yeah 10 well, minutes it, is like super long. Well, it wouldn't necessarily be 10 minutes actually davening. 10 more minutes actually davening. It would be 10 minutes davening okay, or, yeah. or doing absolutely nothing. And just thinking about that, about uh-huh. happening. yeah, like so. Like, if let's say I finish with five minutes left, I'm just gonna sit there, right. and and like think. Yeah, I, I feel like that's gonna be the safest bet of the allotting yourself that time because first of all, it, it lends itself to the most variety in terms of what you choose to do in the moment, like whether you choose to like go more or not, and like if you end up with the worst result, which is you get done early and you just sit there. It forces you to sit there after tefillah, you know, which you're yeah. supposed to do halakhically anyway, you know, and then you get to, then you get to have this very uncomfortable, skillfully frustrating experience of watching your own thoughts, you know, which no one likes to do, like, uh, especially like in a, uh, in a, uh, you know, a forced setting, you know? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that, that, that's a good, uh, that's a good thing. I guess we have to see, I, I have no idea. Actually, I'm very good at knowing how long chakras takes me. I really don't know how mar- long Mariv takes me. I'm so tired by that time. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I got I got to think that through. Yeah, I was going to suggest yeah. which is almost like what you guys are describing as like the BDF version of your experiment. I was going to describe as lechachila, like after you finish Elenu of Marv, you yeah. just sit in a chair for like three to four minutes. Yeah, you're sitting there like no phone, no book, like nothing. Yeah, yeah that's you know, not a bad idea. Silent reflection, reflection either about what you davened about, what yeah. you didn't daven about, or whatever you end up you know, reflecting on just yeah. putting, think, putting, you know, taking like the, just putting yourself into a routine of reflection and thoughtfulness thought, which like should be an ironic statement, but ironically it isn't. Um, uh, Before or just, after? I think, I think, I think afterwards, 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 just three to four minutes afterwards to just sit there, not rush out, whatever. If you end up davening and, you know, a four minute marv, okay, so it is what it is, but you sit there for whatever yeah. the amount of time is silently and just, you know, reflect. Yeah, and then it'll, I, I think like it'll that help. better. Uh, for me, I think that puts less pressure on actually changing my tefillah. And I feel like once I'm putting pressure on myself for like changing how I say the tefillah, and that's like already like, uh, you know, uh, but afterwards, I, I think that's, for me, that's, that's going to be the better alternative is uh, also for me, it's easier oh, instead yeah. of allotting 10 minutes for everything. And then like using leftover times, like subtracting and stuff, just having like the five minutes afterwards, I think it's easier to manage, you know? Yeah, I, well, I think it's it's different for different people. Yeah, for yeah, me, yeah. for me, definitely, um, allotting myself like a, a very generous amount of like a, a too generous amount of time for davening yeah. itself will yeah. will be good for for me. Yeah, um, I hear that. To help, like, to help, um, yeah, I did. Uh, so I, I did. Have, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think you know, you know, we're we're, we're I'd say we're probably at very different stages of 
Fiedler development uh, <laughs> based on based on my own my knowledge of of myself. So and I, I definitely agree that it differs based on uh, for different people, and uh, and you should do what what you think is going to be best for you. I also I, I do I do want to say that I did I did Headspace for a a year and a half, not consecutively. I did it for a full year, and then I did it a half uh, for half a year, uh, or you I guess during the, the first. What was that? You bought the whole library, or uh, I subscribed. I don't know what the system was. Yeah. Exactly. Um, What's that? What, what are you talking? It's a about? it's a mindfulness or meditation app. Um, basically, like I'm sure you can find equal stuff online um, for free. I just paid the money because I knew that if I didn't pay the money, then I wouldn't do it. You know, but if I was paying money for it, then that would be an incentive to like to do it. You know, and like it's um, and uh, and so I did. I scheduled my uh, mindfulness uh, time for 10 minutes before Mariv every night, you know, and that was good, but I didn't try it afterwards. And I want to see if that has a different uh, feeling because the feeling of rushing off afterwards is a big deal. I feel like that's a big temptation. And, uh, and I, I just want to see what happens after that. Okay. So, th- so we, we've come up with general parameters for the experiment, which is giving ourselves extra time, I mean, as I said, the Bokashos thing, which I think is totally good. That, again, that's my that's my first recommendation is Bokashos. Um, But um, sounds like the extra time and see what happens general plan is a good one. Um, I think I'm going to go for the five minutes after Marev. And I already dove in Marev tonight, so I guess I'll have to start tomorrow. Uh, so I guess I'll try it tomorrow. We have tomorrow's Tuesday, right? So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then uh, I'll try to remember to report back on Friday. Or on Thursday night, just to see what happened, and it would be good if we could compare notes. Uh, let's try for three days. Three days is a realistic, you know, expectation. I don't know what your schedules are for the next three days, Mariv, but like, you know, if you can do it, see what happens. Yeah, and I think just as a as a tip, um, whatever uh, amount of time you you give yourself, um, you should put a, a timer on your phone for yes. like three and a half, four minutes. Yeah. And then put your phone a few Yeah, and then just forget about it. feet away and and put it on do not disturb or airplane mode or whatever mode and then you know just sit there and yeah. solitary. Yeah. Otherwise you're just going to be checking it. Yeah. yeah. Right. But you should have the timer so like you know, okay, 4 minutes whatever you it need is. The timer. And when it and <laughs> yeah. when it beeps all right good i hope this was i know we didn't get to start our share i hope this is a productive discussion um yeah very much all right good all right right, so um uh we'll uh, compare notes afterwards and then uh, let's plan to start our share on monday and uh those of you i'm going to see initially share see you in a few minutes different zoom like bye thank you thank you thank you if you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are matt-schneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewas at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.